Uh, welcome to Aletheia Church. Uh, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Happy New Year. Uh, it's good to see the faithful few that were able to stay up uh, past midnight last night and then uh, make it in this morning. And then obviously we have people traveling all over the place. Uh, my wife and I did not make it to midnight. Uh, what? 10? 10? 11? 11. So, um, yeah, we're just past that stage of life. So we... If you want a life hack, so here we are. I'm already off track. New year, same pastor. Um, if you can't stay up till midnight, YouTube live streams London's New Year's Eve bash. So you can bring in the new year at 7 p.m., put your kids to bed, and be in bed by 9. It, The Lord... Love and grace shines on us all. So that's what we did last night. Uh, we had a good time, and uh, but we're glad you are here this morning. It's so good to see you guys. Um, it reminds me of our earlier days of church planning when there are just like 15 or 20 of us hanging around, and next week will be very different, I'm sure, when students and everyone's back in town. But go ahead and turn over to Romans chapter 8. Uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. Next week, we, we will start a series where we will be uh, working through the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings as a church that we have entitled uh, Seeing Jesus, and that will be kind of our goal for 2023 is as we study the gospel of John together, that we'll see Jesus more fully and more deeply. Uh, but this morning, I want to pose a question for you. I like to kind of, at the beginning of each new year, um, just through the, the, the Word of God, kind of challenge us a little bit, maybe to, to get our, our hearts and our minds prepared uh, for walking with the Lord for another year. And so I want to pose this question for you. How would your life look if you knew God was for you? What would your life look like if you knew God was for you? How would knowing that and experiencing that and feeling the depth and the weight of that change how you approach relationships? How would it change the way you approach suffering? How would it change the way you approach sinful tendencies in your own life? How might it change the way you approach challenges that you're going to face this year? You know, for, for an example, I, I think you know, many of us know theological truths, things, things about God, things that might be true of God. But how often do we take the reality of what we might know from a book to be true and actually apply it to our hearts and then our hands as we live out the implications of what it means to be known by God and loved by God? You know, one of the biggest ways that Jackie and I have seen the, the reality of this truth play out in our lives is in this very church. 
You know, 11 years ago, when Jackie and I moved to Gainesville with a dream to see a church started here in Gainesville that would uh, be gospel-centered, that would elevate the glory of God and who He is, that would make much of Jesus, we had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. And over the years, there have been a lot of like really, really high highs in church planning, but there have also been a lot of lows. Uh, difficulty. I remember our first Mother's Day preaching. There was like six volunteers, and those were the six people I preached to that day. Very memorable Sunday for, for me. And wondering, is all this work, all this sacrifice, all these things that we've done, uprooting our family, leaving our closest relatives and friends in Virginia, is all of this going to be worth it? And one of the things that pulled Jackie and I through some of those very difficult days where we didn't know how we were going to pay bills, we didn't know who was going to help us lead things or do things, was, was knowing that God was for us, and in that, knowing that God was for His church going forward and His glory going forward. And that was a great encouragement to us to continue and persevere even when things seemed impossible and that we were going to be unable to move forward. Because see, here's, here's something that I think we all know, but we try our best to forget. Life is difficult. We all experience a myriad of difficulty and suffering that life throws at us because of the reality of sin. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's health complications. Maybe it's the loss of a job or financial hardship. Or maybe it's unmet expectations in a relationship. But quite simply put, life is full of difficulty and hardship. The greatest hardship of all being our slavery to sin. And yet in our text this morning, I'm so encouraged by what Paul has to say in Romans 8 because as Paul wraps up the first half of this letter to the church at Rome, he wants to share two things to this church. That sin has finally been fully dealt with in Christ. And that you and I, if we are disciples of Jesus, can have confidence heading into any difficulties life is going to throw at us because God is for us. All right, look at verse 31 with me, right? Because I'm not just making that up. I'm not just kind of coming up with some platitude to start the new year. Paul explicitly states that God is for us in verse 31. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Right, so there's two parts to that verse. The first one is he says, what shall we say about these things? So let me take a second just to, to take a step back and, and catch you up to speed on what Paul has been talking about up until this point in the book of Romans and specifically chapter 8. Uh, th that would be what the, these things that Paul is referring to here in this verse. So some of the things that Paul has been making clear to his reader up until chapter 8 is that uh, the present sufferings 
that they are experiencing as a church in Rome are nothing compared to the future glory of what they will experience being at the feet of Jesus and worshiping him in glory for eternity. That's one of the points that Paul has made up until this point. He's saying, hey, I know that life is difficult for us right now as disciples of Jesus, but I just need to remind you that that is nothing compared to the future glory that awaits us as we worship God and live with him forever in heaven. He reminded them earlier on as well that the Spirit is their helper in their weakness, meaning he gave them a call to lean on the Holy Spirit for overcoming uh, sin, temptation, and difficulty that, that Jesus had actually sent the Holy Spirit as a helper as we navigated the difficulty and suffering that life throw at us. And then one of the things that Paul had mentioned not long before this verse is this famous verse that people love to take out of context, but he says that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. And a lot of us will take that and mean to believe that I'm going to get a Tesla by the end of the year, right? Because that's what I want. But what Paul's really saying to them is that even our suffering and pain are for our good, that God uses those moments to strengthen us, to bring a greater resolve and love for God, and to know that God will be faithful and for us through the end. I don't want to go into a ton of depth on this because it's not the point of our passage this morning, but some of the biggest lessons I've learned in this life and the greatest freedom I've experienced as a follower of Jesus have come through trials and pain and suffering, not through blessing and wealth and prosperity. I was sitting down with a, a family in our church this past week, and um, I, I don't have their permission to, to say exactly what was said, so I'm just going to speak in vagaries. But the, the line that was used as we were kind of talking about this idea of, of suffering and the Lord using it is that there's a difference in pain that comes from disease and pain that comes from trial from the Lord for our good. And it really struck me because the reality of what she was saying to us at the table was that the Lord uses the pain of trials and difficulties to strengthen us and strengthen our resolve and our knowledge and understanding of God's love for us while the pain of disease just eats away and destroys. And the promise that Paul was making to the church at Rome here is that, hey, even in the midst of the pain of difficulty and suffering and trial, God is using that to strengthen us and help us experience a greater depth of God's love for us. And then right before we get to this verse, is that famous verse that people like to skip over because if, they, if we don't love what the scripture says about predestination or election, it's just easier to pretend it's not there, right? But Paul says that we're predestined, that we're called, that we're justified, and that we're glorified because of the finished work of Christ. And the easiest thing for Christians to do is when you're told a truth like that about God doing that on our behalf through Christ, the easiest thing to do is just ask the question, how can that be? 
How could it be that God could predestine and call and justify and glorify me? If God knows that I will still sin after I'm called, how could I still be justified? How could God still choose for this to be true? And I think if we go back to verse 31, Paul answers any objection that someone might have to that. He says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? See, Paul's message to the church is that in the midst of their suffering and difficulty, in the midst of their doubt because of their habitual sin, in the midst of great danger and evil, that God is for them because they are in Christ. And if God is for them, nothing will destroy them in the end because God has declared that he's for them. And so if you don't take anything else away from what I'm saying this morning, if you are a Christian in this room this morning, here's what I want you to know. God is for you. It may not seem like it. Your life may seem like it's out of sorts or that, that you have no way moving forward. But the reality of what God teaches us in Scripture is that He is for us. And the kind of the great conundrum that we walk through as, as believers and disciples of Jesus is that in knowing that truth, and knowing that to be reality is then figuring out that just because God is for us doesn't mean that I'm always for the same way that God is for me. To put that a different way, suffering and trial and hardship may be the very arena that God wants to place you in for your good even though you don't want to be there. And a, a common objection to this idea of God being for you and being for us and, and wanting what's best for us and, and knowing what that is, is that we might take a step back and say, well, how can I know that that is true? And Paul, as he often does, because he loves to anticipate argumentation when he writes these letters to these churches, is he anticipates this same pushback from the church at Rome. And so he makes this statement that God is for us. And then we're going to spend the remainder of our time this morning looking at the four ways that God has proven to his followers that he is actually for them. And here's why this is important. In the, in the moments where we are in the pit of trial or temptation or suffering, or if we're walking to see sin put to death and struggling to do so, it's easy to believe that we're on an island all by ourselves and that God is nowhere nearby. And it is in those moments where we have to set aside the false teachings of what our heart is telling us and what our emotions are telling us and run to the truth of what God's word says and then preach it to ourselves. And so one of my dreams and hopes this morning is that as we look at these four things, that they would be kind of a banner that we would take throughout the year as followers of Jesus, reminding ourselves of these precious truths of how we can know for sure, without a doubt, that the creator of the universe is for us, even in the midst of trial or difficulty. So let's unpack what each one of these is. So as Paul anticipates the pushback here, like, hey, how do, how, 
how, how can I be sure that God is really for me, right? Like my life doesn't look like God's for me right now, right? I'm struggling in school or I'm about to lose my job or I've got this health complication going on and I, I don't know what's happening. My family was a hot mess around the holiday. Like <laughs> how can you be so assured, Paul, that God is for me? Look at what he says in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Right, so in the midst of that doubt and, and frustration, right, and you're questioning, how do I know God is for us? Paul says the first thing that you need to look to to remember, hey, how, do, how can I be for sure, 100% that God is for me is this. God gave us his son. See, God is so good and so for the redemption and sanctification of his people that he gave his only son as a ransom for the forgiveness of sins. I think one of the things I've noticed, maybe even inside of like, church circles that I'm a part of in the last five or so years is that the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ has become some sort of philosophical, help yourself feel better message. And, and, and let me start by saying this, the gospel should make you feel better. <laughs> it is, it, there's a reason why it is good news. But what Paul is saying to the Romans here is that he doesn't just believe the story about Jesus is given to us so that we can intellectually overcome the demons in our lives and have some motivation to move forward. No, what Paul is saying is that he knows that God is for us because it is a historical fact that God came in the flesh, lived as Jesus Christ, was crucified, dead, and buried, and then rose again on our behalf. That that is not just some philosophical exercise to help you overcome your demons. It's a historical fact that Jesus actually lived and died on our behalf. You know, one of my, one of my friends who moved here to help us start the church 10 years ago, um, had the most simple way in apologetics that I've ever seen. You know, he didn't spend a ton of time reading books or figuring out ways to do different argumentation. Whenever he would come across somebody that was an agnostic or an atheist or would push back on various things about theism or about the existence of God, he would just say, who was Jesus Christ? And he would always use that because he, he said, hey, Jesus said some outrageous things. So either he existed or he didn't. And history seems to lead to the reality of the fact that Jesus really did exist. And if he really did exist, he really did believe that he was God. And if he really did believe that he was God, he believed that he was God who died in our place for our sins and that we needed him to do so and that he then rose from the dead. And he, he just would always look at them and he'd say, and if Jesus really rose from the dead, what do we do with that? It's not just an idea, it's a historical fact. And that matters because Paul looks at this church as he writes to them and he says, knowing that that happened is good news for each and every one of us because it declares to us, God is for us. 
And when we doubt that, we need not doubt it because God did not even spare his own son in rescuing us. Right, if you turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul makes sure to reiterate this fact to the church at Corinth. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So he says in those first two verses, hey, when I came and the church didn't exist and I started preaching the good news of Christ to you, right, remember what I said to you. And he doesn't go into some huge philosophical or theological discourse. Look at what he says to them. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He doesn't go into depth on total depravity or um, the, the, the realities of predestination or election. He doesn't go into depth over where our mental state needs to be as we're believed. No, he just says, hey, the good news is that this happened. Christ came, Christ lived, Christ died, and Christ rose again. And because that happened, we can be assured of the reality that God is for us because he did not even spare his son for us. So one of the things that Paul is encouraging this church to do and what he's encouraging us to do is as we walk through difficulty this year is to take a step back and say, I don't know what's going on. What I'm walking through right now is really difficult and I don't know what the end result is gonna be. But I know that God is for me in the midst of this because if God did not even spare his only son on my behalf, then he must be for me in this as well. God help me to take hold of that and believe that and walk forward in that. See, not only does God remind us that he is for us because he gave us his son, but Paul says there's more. I look at verse 33 of Romans chapter eight. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Right, so he starts off by saying, hey, we, we know that God is for us because of the historical reality of who Jesus was and what he did. But not only is God for us because of what Christ did, in that work, God declares us justified. Now that word justification is a legal term. And what it means is it's the action of showing something to be right or reasonable or good. So what, what Paul is saying is that because of Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection, you and I, if we are in Christ, have been we have gone through a transformation where we were once declared guilty before a holy God. We are now declared not guilty because of Christ. And that's why Paul says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Because here's, here's a reality that Paul knows is true of each and every one of us in this room, no matter how long we've been a Christian, or even if you're not a Christian in here this morning. Just because you are a follower of Jesus does not mean you immediately eliminate all sinful behaviors, patterns, and desires in your life. And if you are a follower of Jesus, one of the tensions in our hearts that happens over time is that 
We continue to step and walk forward in sinful behavior, and yet we hate that we do it. And so we're at, the, we're at war with ourselves that Paul would describe it as being at war with the flesh, but we're in tension because we love God and want to honor him. And yet we do the very things that we know are rebellious and bring a dishonor on his name. And so then as Christians, what ends up happening is this, this sinfulness inevitably leads to accusations being thrown at us on two separate fronts. The one front would be accusations from others where others might say, well, how can you claim to love God and speak to me the way that you just did? Or how can you be a Christian and say that you love people, but you don't really love me the way I'm telling you to love me? Or how can you claim to be a Christian and yet do this thing? Anyone ever heard that kind of line before from somebody else or heard it at least from a friend that's experienced that before? Yeah, the hands are going up like this, right? It's okay, right? I imagine every hand would go up. This is the work of the enemy trying to rob us of joy in our justification. But the accusations don't just come from spiritual warfare or from those around us. They also come internally where we would even ask ourselves, how can I claim to love God and yet still struggle with this? One of the big ones in my life over the last couple of years has been a generational curse in my family of struggling with anger and letting that manifest itself. And one of the ways that I've seen the Lord both transform me, but also the way that I've struggled with doubt at times is seeing the way that I might react to my kids and frustration or whatever else and say to myself, how can I claim to love God and just talk to my son the way that I just did? And yet Paul reminds me, Kevin, it is God who justifies. God declares you to be righteous through the finished work of Jesus. Your behavior does not justify you. Jesus does. And therefore, know that God is for you because he has justified you. Guys, if you are here this morning and you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus, here's Paul's reminder to you. You are not guilty. You should be, but you're not. Because Christ took that on himself and paid for it at Calvary on the cross. And that is such good news because inevitably when you continue to walk forward in life and fail, God's gentle reminder to you, it is I who justify you, not yourself. You are not guilty. And so God displays to us that he is for us because he gave us his son, because he justifies us, And then Paul shares a third way that we can know that God is for us. Look at verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Right, not only does God 
justify us through the work of Christ, but then Christ is right now at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. That word intercession is, means it's the act of intervening on behalf of another. And what Paul is saying is that even now, Jesus is in the throne room of heaven, interceding on our behalf, intervening on our half before the Father. I love the way that John puts this in 1 John because he doesn't differentiate between the reality and the heinousness of sin, but he also makes sure to punctuate and allow the reader to see the beauty of Christ's intercession. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Right? He says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Right? So he's saying to us, like, hey, like, I don't want you to sin. Like, it would be good for us if we stopped doing that. It would go well with us, right? Most of us probably know that. But he says, hey, I want you to know that I'm writing this stuff because I want you to walk forward in holiness. Look at what he says next. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. See, Jesus is our great intercessor, guys. Jesus is always pleading our case before the Father like a great defense attorney. Jesus intercedes for us while Satan accuses us while Satan points out our sin and frailties before God, Jesus points out his perfect holiness given to us. Christ alone is our intercessor, and we can trust that he continues to defend and fight for us even when we are too weak to do so ourselves. God is for you because Christ intercedes for you even at this very moment. So one of the one of the joys in my life is being and being a pastor is, you know, sometimes when when people hit a difficult season in their life and they're really struggling, they'll they'll want to sit down and talk with me. Um, and I get the privilege of counseling people through some really really heavy things in their life. And one of the chief joys that I get to experience in seeing someone walk through suffering and difficulty, maybe it's self-inflicted, maybe it's not, is you know a, a common theme when someone is struggling. It's like, I'm not praying like I know I should. I'm not reading my Bible like I know I should. I'm not being in community like I know I should. And you know, one of the things I always say is like, yes, all those things you should be doing, they'll, they'll be helpful to you. But just so you know, for the last two weeks, you told me you've been struggling, haven't been doing any of these things. Do you know that in the midst of that, Christ is interceding on your behalf through all of this because you are his? Because God is for you and he loves you and he's for your good, even when you are not for your own good. How beautiful is that? So God gives us his son to show us that he's for us. God justifies us to show that he's for us. God intercedes for us through Christ to show that he is for us. And then lastly, for any doubters still in the room, <laughs> he reminds us that Jesus' love can withstand literally anything. Look at what he says starting in verse 35. Who 
shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, some, some people believe falsely that if you become a Christian, all your troubles will go away. And that's not true. If you don't believe me, go find a, someone in this room who's been a follower of Jesus for any length and period of time. They will quickly correct you, not from the word of God, but just from their own life experience. And look at the list of troubles that Paul mentions that we will still be surrounded by as Christians. He says that we will go through tribulation, which means great trouble or suffering. He says that we'll go through distress, which means that we'll experience extreme anxiety or sorrow at times. He says that we'll experience persecution, which means that to be a follower of Jesus means sometimes other people will not like us and reject us. He says that we might experience famine, meaning we might not have all that we think we need or want. He says that we'll experience nakedness, meaning that our shame of our sinfulness will be exposed to the world around us at times. He says that we'll experience danger and the sword, meaning that we might even be put to death for our faith in Christ. And to reiterate the difficulties of what they might experience. He quotes Psalm 44, verse 22, where he says, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You know, one of the things that is fascinating to me as a Christian, you know, I came to faith later in life. And one of the things I, I, I regularly say here when I'm preaching, and I, I believe this to be true, if you were gonna make up a religion, you would not create Christianity. Right? I mean, Jesus says like outlandish things like, no one can come to the Father through me and you must drink my blood to do so. He says things that like, hey, if you want to find your life, you have to first, you have to lose it. Right? And he says things like, you're not worthy of being my disciple unless you're willing to suffer for it. Right? Like just like, you know, could you imagine a politician winning the presidency by saying, hey, I want your life to be terrible. Just vote for me. No, zero votes, right? No, politicians promise life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Your life's gonna be better if you elect me. You're gonna have all the things you ever want. Your house is gonna be bigger. Your kids are gonna be healthy. You're gonna have more money in your bank account than you ever knew what to do with. Everyone's gonna be happy, which we all know is an empty promise. And yet the God of the Bible sends his son to herald the kingdom of heaven to fall underneath Christ. And Christ says, be ready to suffer. And yet the church has gone forward for thousands of years because of the reality of what Christ did for us. And Paul's point is that God's love 
is lavished on us in Christ and that that love is greater than anything this life can throw at us. Greater than death, greater than life, greater than angels and rulers or things present or things to come. Powers like Satan and demons, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is God's promise to you. That habitual sin you're struggling with, yes, you need to put it to death, but it will not separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That health difficulty that you're walking through, it's going to be hard. But it cannot separate you from the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. Mom and dad, the difficult kid, the way you parent, successfully or unsuccessfully, will not separate you from the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. Paul says that we will overcome the world because of what Jesus did. And he's referring back to what Jesus had said in John chapter 16. Jesus talking to his disciples. And he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. See, Paul is attempting to address the reality and the tension that we all face. That we have a tendency to believe the same lie that Adam and Eve believed in the garden. Is God really good? Is is he really for me? It's the very lie that the serpent used to tempt and twist the word of God with Eve. He said, has God really said that you can't eat in this garden? And of course, Eve responds, no, 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 no. That's not what God said. God said we could eat of any tree in the garden except this one in the middle because we would surely die. And what does the serpent say? Oh, you won't die. God's trying to keep that fruit from you because he knows that if you eat from it, you'll be like him and you won't need him anymore. See, God's withholding from you. God's not trying to stop you from dying. He's trying to stop you from becoming like him. He's not for your good. He's out to rob you of joy. And Adam and Eve gave in to the temptation and the lie and the belief that God wasn't for them. And humanity has been wrestling with that same difficulty ever since. Is God really for me? And Romans chapter 8 is an invitation to transfer our hope and our belief and being for ourselves to hoping in Jesus because he really is good. Because God really is for us.
We live in an age and a season and a time where the prevailing thought process of our culture is to believe in yourself and you can do anything. It's one of the most dangerous lies I think we tell kids. Um, I, I, I like actively work against this as a parent and I'm like fairly confident some, like a neighbor or someone's gonna overhear me talking to my kids at some point and like being the realist and they're gonna like call like the Department of Child Services on me. Because, you know, like, let me, let me give you an example. Josiah's dream right now is to be an NBA basketball player when he grows up. <laughs> the laughter tells you all you need to know. Let's start with just the genetics. <laughs> He's screwed. <laughs> the days of Muggsy Bogues surviving in the NBA are long gone. I love, like, one of the best players in the NBA right now is Steph Curry, and they're like, oh, he's so small. He's 6'3". <laughs> I would be looking up to him like this as he shoots another three over my face again. Right? And no matter how hard I work or no matter how hard I believe even my son is going to work, likely unachievable. Right? No matter how hard I might train or hope and believe in myself, the dream is dead. I will never be a professional basketball player. And I'm fairly confident that neither will my son. But even more so with the reality of life, the reality of suffering, death, and sin. The promise to place your hope and trust in yourself is a setup for failure. See, we need to place our hope in a power greater than ourselves, in a place greater than ourselves a hope that will not fail, a hope that will continue on when we do fail, and a hope that is for us. Church, that hope is not an idea or a virtue or a platitude or a psychological truth. It's in a person. It's in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, who left the throne room of heaven, who put on human skin, died in our place, and rose again the third day so that we might be justified and adopted as children of God. A God who gave himself up for us a God who justifies us and declares us not guilty, even though we are. A God who intercedes for us and pleads our case, even as we sit here this morning. And a God whose love can withstand anything because he is for you if you are in Christ. Do not leave here this morning without transferring your hope from whatever it might be in, whether it's yourself, whether it's in another person, whether it's in a job, whether it's in a degree path, whether it's in a, a way that you might be doing something. Do not leave here this morning without transferring your hope from those things to Jesus Christ. Only in him 
Are you truly free? Can you truly overcome the world and have the peace that goes beyond all understanding because of what he's done for us? Let's worship him.